Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Hi, I hope you're healthy and staying safe. My friends at Prosec Partners reached out with the idea of having a mini-series about some of the issues facing allocators in this novel environment. How are they thinking about risk and opportunities? How are they communicating with managers? And how will they conduct due diligence and push forward? I'm grateful to the very busy professionals who spared time to share their thoughts, and a special thanks to Prosec Partners for sponsoring the series. For more than 20 years, Prosec has been building and protecting brands on behalf of leading financial institutions. To learn more, have a listen to my conversation with Jen Prosec that follows on the feed. I'll be putting out these conversations in addition to the regular programming on Mondays. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Andy Golden, the president of Printco, where he's overseen the management of Princeton University's $25 billion endowment since 1995. Andy was an early guest on the show and came back to discuss steering the ship in this tricky time. Our conversation covers communicating remotely, adding value incrementally in volatile markets, managing time, considering liquidity, and playing offense. Please enjoy my conversation with Andy Golden. So, Andy. Second time caller, long time listener. <laughs> How are you spending your day from the minute you get up to the minute you go to sleep? I am kind of curled up in a little fetal position under the, my home office desk, which is different from global financial crisis because that was my office desk. It remains true. Just like normal times, every day is different, and I think they're particularly different. This crisis, obviously, is a special kind of crisis, 
And to state the obvious, we've got the remote work aspect of it. So we've had to institute some routines. You know, normally, we all, the investment team, 20 of us all work in one big room and people wander in at various hours in the morning. <laughs> but you're kind of got a little ability to adapt based upon visual cues. And here, the need to have routine because of the remote work creates a special challenge during a time when you kind of want maximum flexibility. But we got to do it. So how do I spend my time? One thing I have been doing that I usually don't do is I actually look to see what's going on in the market. Our job is, as you well know, is really more about relationship management partnership management than day-to-day asset pricing. But there's this little thing called fiduciary responsibility. And during what I think is objectively the most volatile markets in my career, even compared to the Lehman days, you got to understand, is there anything particularly unusual going on? So if you break down those two things, how have you instituted the right routine with your team to make that work? Yeah, right routine is begging the question. I don't know if it's the right routine, but it is our routine. And my colleagues have taken upon themselves to institute a series of morning check-ins. And again, that's different. We have operated quite proudly with attention to avoiding siloization. But who is in which check-in meeting creates some civilization, or you have people doing nothing but attending check-in meetings, <laughs> which is a cure worse than the disease, the current phrase is. So how have we figured that out? Again, I'm not joking. I'm not sure we have figured it out. I do know that we are reading some pretty good feedback meaning it feels like it's working, so there may be a better way to do it, but I feel pretty good at the knowledge and information dispersal in the group today versus Lehman. It's a different group. It's a broader group at the senior level, but I think some of these check-ins are important. I mean, today, this morning, we pulled off a Zoom equivalent of or bull bear sessions. Every time we have a major decision, we move the entire investment team from the room we normally sit in to a board-like room. And everyone, even if they're in their first week, they're 22-year-old, fresh out of college, attends that meeting and has to write down a vote on that decision going into the meeting. Everyone's got a packet of information that they've read. There's a back and forth. It's called bull bear because we assign a proponent and a devil's advocate. Vote afterwards, again, people write down their votes before declaring in a visual way, kind of raising their hands, actually using their fingers because you can either vote yes or no, but you can also vote pound the table yes or no, signified by using two fingers instead of one finger. Anyway, we just did that remotely. (laughs) And it actually kind of worked. It really worked. So I think that part is still good. We still have our all-hands meetings 
there's a different etiquette with Zoom. We're trying to break through. Here's a newsflash. I have a theory that Zoom meetings are, by the minute, more tiring than non-Zoom meetings, than old-fashioned. Pound for pound, minute for minute, they're more exhausting. And I think it's because people feel an obligation to be looking right into the camera, to be showing the speaker that they're paying attention. Like if you're in a normal meeting, you're shifting in your seat, <laughs> you, you know, you're looking at your watch. But like this intensity of the isometric staring, <laughs> oh my God. And how have you balanced the desire for the interaction of members of the team with separating that into getting work done? That's the question we always have, whether it's a crisis or not. In some ways, it's easier to get work done because people kind of sort of understand the need for focus. And in some ways, that's dangerous because since it's easier to say, hey, I don't have time for this right now, you can use that tool too often. We are very committed to growing our own talent. You can only grow your own talent if you can only grow it well, at least, if they see not just the output of decisions, but see the how the sausage is getting made. And so in terms of big worries right now, a surprisingly large share of my worries are not about getting through this crisis, not even about exploiting as much of the opportunity created by the crisis as possible. It's more about what happens after the crisis and and how do we make sure that we have maintained the culture, maintained the development. And so much of our culture has really been about physical proximity. It has been a strength of ours and a weakness of ours. It creates a threat because it precludes a lot of things that a workforce would like, like remote work, like being able to live in a bigger community. So that may be some benefit that comes out of this, is that we have learned how to marginally be better at remote engagement. The second time of this you talked about that's a little bit different from what you usually do, or a lot different, is paying attention to markets. So how are you doing that, and what are you doing with whatever it is you're gleaning from that exercise? Job one for us is about building a roster of relationships with the world's best partners, or let's call that baking the cake. But there is icing that we do. We occasionally, for example, will co-invest alongside our managers, particularly if that's helpful to them. And one of the things that we do that helps some icing to the cake is rebalancing our risk and opportunity exposures. And with the portfolio's exposures changing literally moment to moment, then we can be spurred to rebalance that. So perhaps with some futures overlays. Where it gets really interesting and is with excess volatility, almost by definition, there's overreactions by markets. So to what extent do you try and exploit that overreaction, even if it's not completely within the paradigm of having moved your asset allocation enough to create rebalancing? In other words, if a market is up 5% on head-scratching amount of news, do you say, hmm, it might be good to take some chips off the table 
even if all markets were up 5%. So you're rebalancing not one versus the other, you're just rebalancing kind of total risk exposure. That generally gets calibrated, I would imagine, across just public markets and cash. How do you think about it if it's not in line with your strategic asset allocation and rebalancing the relative performance of those asset classes? From time to time, and this is one of those times, we are willing to make a bet. When the pitch is fat enough, when things are so far out of whack, when the duck is moving so slowly, we're willing to shoot at it. And going into this crisis, we had marginally built up our defense, meaning had built up a little bit of extra liquidity, meaning a little bit less equity and a little bit more fixed income and cash. Not so much with an idea of doing it in size enough that it would dampen a downdraft in returns. It was doing it in size enough that it would create some well-deserved comfort in terms of our own liquidity situation so that we might be able to play some offense. So we went in with less beta than, and I'm talking marginal amounts. This is, again, icing on the cake. Is it like a few percentage points or like what's the order of magnitude? Yeah, like less than a few percentage points. Right? But we had also not done that evenly and had a fairly significant bet against the U.S. stock market, which was helpful in March. You know, the irony is that this all started with people worried about China. China is the least troubled area in terms of markets right now. So that's a little bit helpful, but not a huge amount. And so we're continuing to look at a little bit more focus on the U.S. gyrations, in part because they, we entered into the crisis with a more fully valued U.S. market than other markets. So you could start at the market level. Will you then also do that within the cap buckets or style buckets or sectors? Back in the day when we had a ton of money in the first place in the U.S., that was a huge area that occupied us. About half, maybe a little more than half the portfolios in non-marketable investments. And you got already this underweight in the US, so you can only underweight so much. There probably are some opportunities there. But I think the more interesting thing is less about what we've been doing. And it's not because I'm trying to avoid talking about it, but more about what meta issues we're being reminded of. And there's this question like, Already on this brief interaction, we spent a lot of airtime on icing, which is natural. But one of the things you ask, how I spend my day? Every day, not when I first wake up, but probably about eight times during the day, I'm thinking, is this really the right thing for me to be focusing on? To a point where it's counterproductive, that I keep asking myself, is this the right thing to be fo focused on? And the right thing is really engaging with our partners in the first instance with our investment partners, but also with our partners on campus. We're trying to work through the implications of what today looks like a slight loss for the fiscal year, but has over the past several weeks sometimes like more of a loss. And how do we think about that? And again, those meta-level questions get to be a bit more so excuse me, more about epistemology, like how do we know stuff? How much confidence should we have? And while I'm very proud 
of some of the tempting to say wisdom gained through the experience of having gone through a crisis before, I'm frankly a little embarrassed of having to relearn some of these things like, yeah, you probably are overconfident in your ability to know what's actually going on in your portfolio, let alone know what's going on in the world. So somehow by the end of this podcast, we will have gotten through how I get through my day. So, so far I look at markets and then I spend a lot of time in self-doubt wondering if I'm focused on the right thing while my colleagues hold a lot of check-in meetings and I keep thinking, oh, I should attend some of those. <laughs> well, if you start at that highest level of what's happening at the university, there is this uncertainty about what does, let's just simplify it and say, the tuition dollars of an incoming freshman class look like in September. Does that factor into how you might be thinking about any excess liquidity that you have and putting it to work? Well, yes, but not in the way that you're probably imagining that. One of the lessons that we actually learned, as opposed to were reminded of during the global financial crisis, was a benefit of looking at liquidity in a unified way across the university. So it's not so much about how we're deploying liquidity within the endowment. It's really about how we're thinking about liquidity across the entire mothership and what are the potential excess needs due to that example you gave and how should we think about that the intersection is that coming out of the global funders crisis, the university explicitly built up a little bit of reserve outside the endowment for liquidity so that in a kind of break glass situation, then we could defer some spending coming out of the endowment. And a lot of conversation is about when to use that. Once you get your own nervousness out of the side and the, the broader picture of the landscape of the university, you mentioned wanting to be in a position to play offense. As you're looking at where to play offense now, how are you doing it? Well, I think it, in some ways it's a little too early to be playing offense. And that was kind of one of the understand. If we talking today as opposed to three weeks ago, four weeks ago, it's again embarrassing to admit this. But I have a much greater appreciation of the range of possible outcomes in the real world, the alone financial markets. And that uncertainty suggests that we should really wait until we see the whites of their eyes before we start firing. We're really hitting pause on the offense for now because it's just so hard to figure out. Even if you knew you had this many dollars to play offense, how would you optimize that? But the number of dollars you have to play offense is actually pretty variable itself. Obviously, this construct of defense and offense is a little vague and fuzzy. I was thinking about it a long time ago. An investment manager used the phrase, in order to finish first, you first have to finish. And... I think defense is about making sure that you finish and offenses strive to finish first. But I think it's kind of hard to have a clear view as to how to optimize. And you know, ultimately, you want that to be a bottom-up decision anyway. So it's facts and circumstances. 
as opposed to saying, oh, this is the sector that is ripest. You would say our manager in this sector is expressing this argument. And yeah, that, that A, makes sense and B, is different from some of the other things that we're hearing. So again, it's one of those times where portfolio theory actually comes into play. Have you had managers thus far effectively call for the ball? Yeah. I have long been frustrated by a trend among marketable managers to create drawdown vehicles to be used in market dislocations because it causes us to sub-optimize our portfolio. It's perfectly rational from the manager saying, I want to legally contract being able to pounce on opportunities when the market's down 30%. But because those are legal commitments, we can't have them sum up to more than one. And you're trying to figure out in advance how to build that portfolio that will pounce in the optimal way in this future state with complete uncertainty, right? And so it's frustrating in the sense of it's slightly worse than what it would be for us than if we just keep it loosey-goosey and say, well, if you're seeing something interesting, give us a call and then we can figure out do we want to give you 25 or 50 million, right? And then we'll be balancing out against other calls. I think one of the issues that may come out of this current crisis is that for those few managers who were willing to just play it more informally, they're going to be processing the advantage that some of those managers with the legal draw have, and it may actually spread that even more, which would be really a shame because it's like tragedy of the commons. It's good for that individual manager and bad for the ecosystem that is Princeton, uh, Sprinko. What market areas have you seen your underlying managers find particularly attractive at this point in time? There was a brief moment where there's such dislocation across high quality corporate debt that had to take precedence of like, because you were pretty much guaranteed a multiple. You didn't know what your IRR would be because you know the time. But when you get past that, it's almost like, where aren't people seeing up? opportunities. And I guess maybe one answer is, it's not that they don't see opportunities, it's that they themselves have their own uncertainty. The analogy that we've often used in trying to describe it to ourselves whilst to our managers is, hey, it's a buffet line, right? And you got a plate and you don't want to fill up your plate too early because often the lobsters at the end, they start out with a nice salad, bread and stuff. Make sure you leave room for the lobster at the end. You mentioned earlier having a session with your team that sounded like it was about a new investment opportunity. How have you adjusted to adapting not just to the assessment of opportunities within your current portfolio of managers, but maybe something that was in your pipeline or even something that may come that's new in this virtual world? Yeah. Partnership management, roster management, as I said, is job one. And we have never and can't imagine we ever would create a new relationship to seize upon an acute opportunity because then what happens when that opportunity goes away? We want to partner with A-plus people and we're going to try and make that work 
however we can in whatever environment we can, subject to some of the constraints of physics of liquidity. You can't start a relationship. You can't give that any money, right? So the decision meeting today was about something that was long in the pipeline, and we think it was a A plus group, and you know, so it came out positive, and that's where we're going to go. It is not uncommon, even within our roster, to have to do the math between IR and multiple in its various flavors, which is for relationships that can compound over a long time into something really big, even if there's a lower nominal return to that, if you don't have that kind of reinvestment risk, you may want to choose that relationship over something that has more of a burst of high IRR, but you're not sure that you're going to be able to keep compounding with the manager. And we're still north of 25000000000 billion. I'm not sure how far north because it changes moment to moment, but certainly we always need to be cognizant of the ability to deploy capital in appropriate sizes, which as you well know, we do in a barbell fashion. We're able to have some fairly small relationships because we have some really large ones. But if you're going to be a small relationship, then there's got to be a reason, which could include just amazing absolute and risk-adjusted returns, even on a small amount of money, or it could be pretty good amazing returns that also grow into being multiplied on an ever-growing base of money. If this lasts for longer than we anticipate, what have you seen in the change in the way you've worked that you think will continue to work effectively? I think we're going to have to be a bit more intentional about our talent development efforts. We have scheduled four investment interns to be starting first week in June. That's part of our summer program. These are current juniors, you know, rising seniors at Princeton, which is where we get a lot of our talent. And it's like a classic summer internship program where it's a feeder for full-time offers. That's been an important, not exclusive, but important way of getting to know each other. And we found a pretty good program, if I do say so for ourselves in that regard, where we we do get to know each other and both directions. Well, we may not be able to do that this summer. So as we speak now, we are trying to think about what does an ideal remote internship program look like? And I find myself making the analogy to evolution in the tech world of when PC-based engagement moved to mobile, it wasn't as good as stuff that was developed just for the phone. And I think it's pretty interesting right now as we think about, you kind of necessarily have to start with something so we'll adapt. But we're also trying to figure out, is there a native remote engagement or is there a native smaller bite size engagement? And that gets pretty exciting in terms of thinking about casting a broader net with folks, which gets to one of my favorite topics, as you well know, is our efforts to improve diversity 
within the investment management business, within Prinko, within our roster, but within the investment management world. And so I think it's pretty interesting as we think about, are there things that we can do? Like we have a training program for interns that they have always done through self-learning, which I can now call remote learning before they arrive. Well, can we turn that into a boot camp that we can actually engage in a much broader population, populations that maybe are intimidated by the investment world because they're first in their family to go to college from somewhere that's not a major financial center. So that would be one of the things I'm hoping will be lasting, but I'm probably over-promising right now. But as I said, our efforts in diversity remain important to us. And so if anyone does listen to this, I would hope that they would consider visiting the page mentormoments.princeton.etu to learn more about our what will now be a remote mentoring program. Has there been anything that surprised you in how people have tried to approach you during this time? I have been surprised by folks who have approached me even more intensely than normal about non-investment things. And I wonder a little bit about their calculation as to thinking, even if I want to be receptive, how I'm going to be receptive on that. I think it's also interesting that the really kind of off the beaten path investments, like a sports betting fund, (laughs) that's interesting that you would think that I would think that what I need right now when very traditional things are on sale is to go far afield. I know they're not thinking that, that they just need to do what they need to do, but it just strikes me as I'm being unfair, but I'm using, we'll get right on that. What have you taken out of this period of time that you think if we do get back quickly has been pleasantly surprising in the positive nature of it? Look, I think whether or not we get back quickly, I have not been surprised, but I've been reminded at the power of teams, the power of partnership. I am really grateful for the quality of work that my colleagues are doing and at times independently of any engagement by me. I am super gratified by the quality of partnership we have with our external management partners where all these conversations are about how can we help each other as opposed to a more vendor type relationship. I am super gratified by the quality of engagement with the university administration and frankly, university trustees, Franco board, where everyone's under a lot of stress, but people are playing their A plus game in terms of engagement. I think it's a reminder that by the time a crisis hits, it's too late to develop partnerships, to develop the right culture. So I am grateful that we were able to get to a place where we had good initial conditions. Frankly, I'm a little embarrassed now, but in the very early weeks of the global financial crisis, I displayed 
some hubris, believe it or not, in that I was kind of excited. I was calling this, and I still am, a rematch. It's like, oh, good. This is like, bring on George Foreman now, because this time we're ready for the crisis, as opposed to the global financial crisis. We started off kind of our back foot. Well, Andy, really appreciate taking a few moments to share your thoughts. I think it's probably appropriate to let me allow you to go back to day trading. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that Tesla stock is not going to buy and sell itself. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. Great okay. to see you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 